As we've already heard read this morning, we're looking at Genesis 3, 1 through 15, and I'd invite you to have a copy of Scripture open. I think you'll find it helpful to do so and to be looking at it along with me as we look at it together this morning. Uh, As I've noted, this is a foundational section of Scripture. When I was 24 years old, I... Uh, worked in a job doing construction. It was the, the worst job I ever had because I made nothing and it was very difficult work. And, and I very quickly learned that um, I'm either going to have to go start a construction company and make other people do the work and make the money or I'm going to go have to do something else in life. And the Lord directed me in another direction. But I learned a lot of valuable lessons doing construction. One of those lessons um, I learned as we were working on a a uh, huge cabin up in North Carolina, and uh, I was cutting the risers for a set of stairs to put into the second floor, and I was so proud of how carefully I thought I was cutting these risers for the steps, and I went over to put them up where they needed to go to the second floor, and they were, they were about eight inches off, too high, and I asked my boss what I did wrong. I thought I had measured everything properly. He said, well, obviously you were off a sixteenth of an inch on the first riser, and so by the time you got to the top, you were off a whole lot more. And I think as we look at God's Word, uh, it's a good illustration for us. If we are off in our theology and understanding of what's happening in the first three chapters of Genesis, and especially what's happening in Genesis chapter 3, we will inevitably be off in our understanding both of the Christian life and of Christian service and missions in particular, And so as we look at this together, I hope that the Lord will use this to stir us up to understand more of the mission of God. This is, this is the first time we hear about the mission of God. This is the first missionary enterprise here in Genesis 3. Now, God has created man and he created male and female in his image and his likeness. He has given man... Dominion over everything. He has said, the whole earth is yours. You can eat of every tree of the garden except this one tree so that you would know that I am God and that you are a creature, that you would remember who you are. God put that one tree off limits, but God had given Adam a commission and a mission. God had said to Adam, you are to be my prophet, priest, and king in my garden temple where I am going to dwell with you and your offspring And you are to work the ground and you are to turn the whole world into a garden temple paradise where holy offspring, image bearers of God will dwell and I will dwell with them and they will mirror forth and show forth my glory to the world I have created and they will be image bearers, sinless, holy, perfect, God glorifying image bearers. That's why God created us. But you know The account so well, our first parents fell, they uh, very quickly disobeyed, they did the one thing God had told them not to do, they made themselves a law unto themselves, they sided with the evil one, and they brought themselves and us into a world of death and sin and misery and curse and everything else we experience in this life. I was talking to a man just this past week on the way back from uh, Dallas uh, he was from Ghana, a Christian from Ghana, and we were talking about how wonderful the Bible is, which is not always conversations I have on planes when I tell people I'm pastors, but how wonderful the Bible is and, uh, and how, how rich and beautiful and exciting scripture is. And, and I said to him, you know, but it's so sad. And there were a number of people listening in to what we were talking about. And 
I said, but it's so sad that this is, this, this is the explanation of who we are and why we're here and what the world is and why the world is like it is, and yet men reject it, and they don't want the truth. But we as Christians love the truth, and this is the truth, and this tells us why we are the way we are. And as the narrative in Genesis 3 begins to unfold, and Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, and they have sided with the evil one, and now the Lord is coming to approach them. The first thing that we see is that sinners, fallen men and women and boys and girls in Adam, just like Adam and Eve did, love to hide themselves from God. This is the very first thing I want us to see. Notice verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Now, keep in mind, against that background, God had created Adam to live in unbroken fellowship with himself. You know, we are spending our lives. I don't need to know anything about any of you to know that you are spending your life trying to find some sort of satisfaction, pleasure, happiness, joy, peace, contentment in a thousand different things. And yet God created us to, to be uh, fully and perfectly content with him, satisfied in him, delighting in him, rejoicing in him as the fountain of living waters and to, to know his presence with us surrounding us and dwelling us, guiding us, leading us. And that's what Adam would have known in, in an unbroken way before the fall. You know, Adam experienced something we've never experienced, unbroken communion and fellowship with God until he sinned. And then it is diametrically opposed. What Adam was, what Adam now is. And now instead of longing for the blessed presence of the infinite eternal God, he's hiding behind a tree that God had made. It also shows us how um, men and women in this world and us by nature have lost, we have lost the knowledge of God. Our view of God is skewed. Adam is so deceived, self-deceived at this point, he thinks he can hide behind something that God made. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, English Baptist preacher of the 20th, 20th century, said two things I want to read to you. First, he said, man is running away from the only one who can bless him. I want you to think about that. Man is running away from the only one who can bless him. All over the world right now, people are running in every direction, whether it's for money, power, pleasure, success, status, experience, children, anything. And they're just running away from the only one who can bless them. Lloyd-Jones goes on to talk about how Adam's hiding now behind the tree, running and fleeing from God. And he says, but the back of the tree belongs to God, even as the front of the tree belongs to him. Now, it's a sad picture, and yet it's a picture of who we are, and it's a picture of what everyone around us is like by nature. And all over the face of the earth, all our cultural differences aside, we are all... We are all, by nature, fallen in Adam, just like Adam, and we are all spending our time uh, filling that sad story of human history, playing hide-and-seek with God. If you had come into our house, we had a fairly long ranch-style home, and um, if you saw our three sons in there any given week, they they loved to play hide-and-seek, and they weren't very good at it. 
Um, I remember there were times where our youngest son Judah would go hide behind my bookshelf in the living room and like his whole foot would be sticking out and be like, come on guys, I'm ready. Come find me. (laughs) And they, they weren't good at it. And we're not good at hiding from God. We do it incessantly, but we're not very good at it. Adam was not very good at it. Um, And nevertheless, it is the plight of man in this fallen world. You know, missions exist because the fall happened. Uh, World missions exist because men and women and boys and girls are hiding themselves from the God in whom they live and move and have their being. Missions exist. Evangelism exists because we have turned from the God who gives us life and breath in all things. And like David said, like sheep, we have gone astray, each to our own way. Um, I think it's helpful for us to remember that when we come to focus in a special way on missions. Uh, it's, it's fruitless for us to jump to the finished product if we miss that step and if we're off on what man truly is. Um, you know, sometimes we mistakenly say, well, there are a lot of people out there, they're, they're seeking. Well, they are, and they're not. They're hiding. They're hiding. That's what Genesis tells us. Notice, they heard the sound of the Lord God, and they hid themselves. Now, what I want us to focus on, secondly, and, and most um, particularly this morning, is that, that God here, the creator God, is the redeemer, and he is seeking and saving a people for himself from the beginning of time. Now, the church doesn't begin when Jesus comes. The church begins in the garden. Evangelism doesn't come when the Son of God comes into the world. Evangelism begins in the garden. Missions do not formally begin with Jesus and the apostolic ministry in the book of Acts. Missions begin in the garden. Here is Yahweh. Here's the true and living God. And he is now coming to seek a people who have turned from him and rebelled against him. And he is doing that because he is seeking a people to reconcile to himself. And he is going to do that by himself. Now notice the steps that the Lord takes in seeking and saving a people for himself. Notice the Lord God called to the man, verse 9, and said to him, where are you? Now this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Because... This is the first thing that God says to man after the fall. Think about this. Before this, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Enjoy everything. Tend it, keep it. Don't eat of this tree. And now he says, where are you? Now God knows where he is. The Lord doesn't learn. He knows all things. He's ordained all things. He's not not asking Adam to teach him anything. He is seeking to teach Adam what he's become. And in asking Adam, where are you? The Lord is asking every one of Adam's descendants the same question. So this morning he is saying to you, whoever you are, where are you? He is speaking to the conscience of fallen man. He is saying, where are you? Essentially, he's saying, Come out, confess what you've become and what you are. Come back to me. Own what you are by nature. You know, I was in an uh, Uber. You also have interesting conversations in Ubers. 
And I was in an Uber and uh, talking to a guy who said he was a Christian. I was with some buddies and he had said something and I, I had responded, I thought appropriately saying, yep, we're all great sinners. And he said, I'm a great sinner. Yes, yes, we're all great sinners. That's what Adam has become. That's what we are in Adam, dead in sins and trespasses, hiding from the presence of the Lord. And God comes and he says, where are you? And he doesn't come to terrify Adam so much as to convict Adam. His purpose in asking the question, where are you, is that Adam would recognize that Adam would come to terms with the fact of who he is in that sense that the law of God would do its work in him and that he would come to realize I need to be reconciled to this God that I have been alienated from. Um, People don't like questions. I learned that very early. I used to try to teach friends and um, acquaintances uh, things out of the scripture by asking them questions. I would try to lead them to the water and I'd, I'd say, now, you know, Luke says this here and Luke says this here. So what do we have to conclude here? And, and several people would get very frustrated with me. You know, we don't, I learned very quickly, we don't like to be questioned. We don't like questions. And yet God is a God who will deal with us First and foremost, by bringing the law, then by bringing the gospel, but he does it by bringing that that grand question, where are you? And every time the gospel is preached, every time the word is opened, every time missionaries are laboring faithfully to, to diffuse the aroma of Christ through the preaching of God's word and the gospel, God is saying to men and women, where are you? Now, he says it through friends. He says it in other ways to us, through circumstances and situations in life, but he says it poignantly and he says it directly when God is interacting with his people through his word. You know, Adam and Eve and the evil one had been okay having conversations about God as they were rebelling. Um, Adam was fine talking about God. Eve was fine. You know, well, the Lord told us not to do this, as God really said. And they're having a conversation about God, but now he has to have a conversation with God. You see, when God is dealing with Adam, he is saying, you have to deal with me. I am the true and living God. And I'm here to seek you, to bring you to repentance, to draw you to myself. You know, I thought about this. There's sort of an interesting analogy between, or... Uh, comparison between Genesis 3, God's dealing with Adam and David in Psalm 51, because Adam doesn't immediately come out and say, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. I did what I wasn't supposed to do. Have mercy on me, O God. He, he should have done that. That's the proper response. Um, remember, David, when he's finally convicted by Nathan the prophet, and he's committed atrocious sins. He's taken Bathsheba to himself. He's, he's uh, premeditated the murder of one of his best friends and one of his mighty men. Uh, he has sinned against Bathsheba and her family, Uriah and his family, his own family, all of Israel. God says, you've done this before all of Israel. There are going to be irremediable consequences in the house of David. But when David finally comes to a place of, of repentance and brokenness, he goes back and he says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. It's as if David has heard the where are you, David? And he has responded appropriately. Adam goes on hiding and he now hides through excuses, right? We, we see how people hide through intellectual 
arguments and moral arguments. And, you know, I know Christianity, the Bible says this, I've heard this, but what about this? And then why are there so many religion and yada, yada? And people love to make excuses to hide and to evade what God is calling them to do, which is to come to him in brokenness. And Adam goes on, right? The Lord asks, um, who told you you were naked? And then Adam goes on to blame Eve. She goes on to blame the serpent. And there is just a perpetual hiding from the Lord. But the Lord is seeking and he's doing a heart work in Adam and Eve. And one of the glorious things about this chapter is that it teaches us the essence of evangelism and missions. And, and that is that God is the initiator and that evangelism and missions are to be carried out the way God wants them to be carried out. And what the Lord uses is very simply law and gospel. He first comes to convict them in their consciences of what they've done with those questions. He then comes with the glorious promise of what he's going to do. Now, you have to focus carefully here. No sooner has Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent that the Lord then pronounces what we call the creational curses. The covenant of works is broken. Now man is under the curse and wrath of God. And he comes to pronounce curses, but he does it in the order in which his creation has rebelled against him. So in verses 14 and 15, the Lord is going to pronounce a curse on the serpent, on Satan himself, who has come through the vehicle and instrumentality of that serpent. He is then going to pronounce the curse on the woman and that place of uh, former blessing, childbearing, where she was supposed to bring forth holy offspring. Now she's going to have pain because of the curse. And then on Adam himself, the head of humanity, um, and he is going to have um, difficulty uh, uh, laboring and taking the garden out. Now the ground's going to bring forth thorns and he's going to eat bread by the sweat of his brow and then he's going to die. And he's already died spiritually, but then there's going to be physical and eternal death. And yet what's interesting is that when the Lord comes to the serpent, he doesn't come with a question I noticed this many years ago. He doesn't come and say to Satan, where are you? Because his purpose is not to redeem fallen angels, right? Hebrews 2 says he does not give aid to angels. He does not redeem fallen angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, to believers who have trusted in Jesus. So he doesn't help fallen angels. There is no redemption for them, but this entire chapter is about redemption for man. It's beautiful. And in that curse on the serpent, notice verse 15, most important verse in the Bible. If you thought it was John 3, 16, you bought into the end end zone verse lie in the 80s. Everybody had him in the end end zone, John 3, 16. Genesis 3, 15 is actually more important. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says that the rest of the Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3, 15. So this is the gospel. This is the first preaching of the gospel. In the garden, God says, I will put enmity between you, the kingdom, Satan, and the kingdom of darkness, and the woman, and between your seed, offspring, and her offspring. That's the first preaching of the gospel. God is promising to send a redeemer 
who, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, and it's a very interesting way of talking about Christ, was born of a woman. He's the seed of the woman. Born of a woman. Born under the law. So he is the Redeemer. And if I asked you this morning to write down on a card, why did Jesus come into the world? I wonder if any of you would answer the way the Apostle John does in 1 John. He says, for this reason, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the evil one. He came to crush the head of the serpent. He came to do all that Adam failed to do. And he came to undo all that Adam did. He would be the last Adam. And he would know that conflict. And that conflict would be felt throughout all of the Old Covenant as God is working out his missionary plan. He prepares Israel as a nation to be a light to the world, to the nations. And we read in the Psalms about the nations. And yet Israel really is only going to become a place where the Redeemer would come. It would be just a little landmass for him to come and bless the world through what he does. And yet in the Old Testament, there's the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. All of, all of God's people's conflict with Egypt and the Amalekites and the Edomites and all of the Canaanites and all of those nations, the Philistines, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And, and this is Satan trying to destroy the great promise of God that he's going to send a redeemer. And then Jesus comes, and at the beginning of his ministry, he faces off head-to-head in enemy-occupied territory with the evil one himself in the wilderness. And he obeys where Adam failed to obey. He was tempted in all points, even as we are yet without sin. And he is the last Adam, and he undoes what the first Adam did in the garden. And then he goes and he casts out demons and he is showing that the kingdom of God is breaking into time and space and that he is the king of the kingdoms, that he is the redeemer, that he is king of kings and lord of lords, that he is the last Adam and the true Israel, that he has come to merit the blessings of God for his people and to restore the presence of God to his people. And yet there is opposition, isn't there? Religious leaders in the church are trying to kill him. And he tells them, you're of your father, the devil. You're the seed of the serpent. Everywhere in scriptures, everywhere, drawing our minds back to that first gospel promise that God gives Adam and Eve as he is seeking them to save them. Um, By the way, I didn't say this in the first service. I think Adam and Eve actually believe this promise. I think they they were redeemed. Um, Adam will name Eve, Eve, which means living, after God pronounces the curse on him. Because I think he realizes she's the one that's going to give birth to the Redeemer who's going to give life to men where death is. She will name her first son Cain, which means a choir in Hebrew, because she is looking forward, hopeful that this will be the one to come and redeem us. She's miserably wrong. But she is hoping and trusting in that promise. Um, Now, why is this important? Because if we get it wrong here, the staircase is not going to work. The Bible makes an enormous deal about all of human history and all of theology being structured by Adam and Christ. First Adam, last Adam. 
Uh, an old Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, used to say, and it's a great illustration, uh, if you could just envision this right now, there's 7 billion people on the planet. He didn't say that because there wasn't 7 billion people then, there is now. But um, 7 billion people on the planet, and Goodwin said, it's as if there were two giants on the earth, and only two giants. And they, they were representing everyone else, and everyone else hung around the belt loop and hung off the, the girdle of one of those two giants. You are either in Adam, or by God's grace you have been united to Jesus Christ. You are either still in Adam, hiding from God, lost and perishing under the wrath and curse of God, or by God's grace you have been redeemed and rescued by Jesus Christ and you are in union with the second Adam, fully represented by him. Everything that's true about him is true for you. Right? Adam went and tried to cover the shame of his sin and fix himself. Adam tried to save himself, sewing fig leaves together. But remember, God comes and he clothes. Another reason I think they were saved. Clothes Adam and Eve with the animal skins. That's a picture of him clothing us with the imputed righteousness of Jesus. That he imputes the righteousness of the last Adam to all who trust in him. Why will you go to heaven if you tell me anything other than because I'm in Jesus Christ? And what he has done is for me. His blood was shed for me. His righteousness is mine. I would be afraid that you may not know the gospel. And that's why missions exist. So that Jesus Christ, the last Adam, would be proclaimed. You know, it's very interesting. You have a sort of this theology of the trees in in Genesis, and there's a lot there, and some of the early church theologians used to make a big deal about this. But there is a, there's a beautiful juxtaposition here. You know, Adam is hiding among the trees. Now, think about it. God had given him all the trees to eat from. They were the sphere of blessing, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and God had said, eat of all of them. Now Adam is hiding among all of them. And, um, and he's trying to flee from God among the trees. And, you know, Simon Peter makes a big deal about this, I think, when he, he calls the cross the tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness. And I think what you have is where Adam was hiding from the presence of God among the trees. Jesus says, I will voluntarily lay down my life publicly on the tree. I will be mocked and beaten and scorned. I will be crowned with the thorns that were the curse of the ground because of man's sin. I will wear that publicly. I will not hide myself. I will hang on the tree. Not so that I may enjoy the presence of God, but that I may actually, as it were, lose the presence of God for a moment when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because our sin and Adam's sin was being imputed to him on that tree publicly so that we could have the presence of God restored to us. That's how it works. That's it. It's nothing else. That's how the presence of God is restored to men and women and boys and girls. That is the central message of the gospel. That is what missionaries are called to proclaim. That is what we are called to believe and speak about and love and sing about and talk about 
and delight in and have our minds blown over the truth of that the God who is in the garden saying, where are you, is the same God hanging on the cross saying, come unto me. Isn't that amazing? Where are you? Come unto me and I will give you rest. Wow. That's awesome. Um, you know, you all are, are in a focused way think about missions and um, obviously not everyone is called to foreign missions. Uh, but everyone here this morning is called, first and foremost, um, to be an object of the mission of God. So whoever you are, you are an object of the mission of God, first and foremost. God is saying to you this morning, where are you? Jesus is saying, come unto me. And in order for us to be called into the fellowship of God's missionary enterprise, his eternal missionary plan, we have to first come to him. We have to come out from behind the trees and we need to say against you and you only have I sinned. Have mercy on me. It's very interesting, isn't it? I didn't say this the first service as fully, but Zacchaeus, there's a tree, right? And Zacchaeus climbs up that tree to see who Jesus is. But Zacchaeus doesn't really know who Jesus is at that point. And it's, it's not Zacchaeus seeking Jesus. It's Jesus seeking Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Remember, Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes to the tree and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come down, get out. I'm coming to your house. Salvation's come to this house. And then Luke says that Jesus said, for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. It's the same God in the garden. And he has been a God who has relentlessly been seeking his people from the beginning of time to this morning in this church. Uh, secondly, I would say, you know, sometimes we mistakenly think if I'm, if I'm really walking closely with the Lord, then, you know, I'm going to serve a lot in my church, which you should do, serve a lot in your church. Uh, if I'm, but if I'm, you know, if I'm really doing good and I'm really consistent with my Bible reading and my prayer life, then I'll probably serve on a committee and, you know, and maybe I'll be an elder or a deacon. And then, and I think we got this in the 80s somehow, if I'm really sold out to Jesus, I'm going to Burma or I'm going to Papua New Guinea. Or I'm going as far away as I can possibly find to be a foreign missionary. And, and I think as much as we are going to pray for and support foreign missions, because that is God's desire, and God sends men and women to the mission field, the Lord wants us to be faithful where we are, where he's called us, and, and he wants us to be praying for the global advancement of his kingdom, for the spread of the gospel. He wants us to be praying for missionaries. He wants us to be supporting them, as, as you've been encouraged to do so this morning. He wants us to partner with them, to share in the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. From right where we are, in Myrtle Beach, Surfside, Merle's Inlet, we'd be thinking about our neighbors, everybody we rub shoulders with. They need the gospel. Many of them have never heard what you're hearing this morning. Some of them may think they've heard it. And they haven't. Um, And so I just encourage you, as we meditate on these things and think about these things, maybe they're not new to you, maybe you've heard this, you've known this, and it's just, I hope, a good reminder that we need to be reminded of these things. Um, You know, I need my heart 
stirred up by God's word so that I can be as fruitful as I can be wherever he takes me and wherever he puts me. And I want that for you. I know your elders want that for you. And so may God bless his word. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so weak and so frail. We are just like Adam by nature, hiding ourselves from your presence, not wanting to come forward and to confess what we are and to to cry out for you to have mercy on us. And so we pray that you would do a work of grace in each of us this morning, that you would make us to hear uh, the great, where are you, down to the great, I will, where you promise that you would do the work of redemption, that you would send the Redeemer, that you would be the Redeemer for us, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the last Adam. We thank you that you have done everything that we need. We pray that you would open our hearts to understand these things, that they would burn within us, that we would have a longing for everyone around us to know you. Would you please work in us so that we might be zealous for the spread of the gospel and the advancement of your kingdom and the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.